I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A young woman's self-loathing fueled a diabolical plan that would take obsession to the extreme. This is the Caroline Reed Robertson story. Amy. Hey, Megan. Today's case was suggested by a listener named Allie from Melbourne, Australia. Oh. I mean, we we just covered one from uh, Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. Who knew we were going to be doing these two back to back, right? Yeah. It's, we don't, it's rare that we do international cases back to back like that. Yeah. She thought that we would be particularly interested in this case, and I can totally see why. It involved youthful crimes with hard-to-explain behaviors, and I think this is kind of what we like to dig into, right? There's a lot of theory here, and I feel like for me and you, we also like to explain juvenile offending Mm -hmm. and the differences between juveniles and the mindset of juveniles as well. Mm -hmm. And so I have to say, this is a very complicated offender that we're covering today. And I found the case and Caroline Reed a bit perplexing myself. So I went ahead and consulted with our good friend, Dr. Shiloh, over at L.A. Not So Confidential because of her background with personality disorders. I mean, obviously, we love to team up with Shiloh and Scott. We just did, uh, what did we do, Sherry Papini's case with them before we've done Cindy James. And when we get to the theory part, Amy, I'm going to make sure to discuss Shiloh's opinions, okay? Great. She was was very helpful. She was able to put some things into place and confirm some of my original thoughts as well, which was great. Thank you again to Allie from Australia, and thank you to all of our listeners over there. We're so grateful for your support and the fact that you're listening from Australia and keep suggesting these really 
interesting cases. Now let's meet Caroline Reed Robertson. Caroline was born in 1978 in Melbourne, Australia. She was the eldest of three girls in a middle-class family. When she was 16 years old, her parents, Gail and David Reed, divorced, and Caroline went to live with her mother and took her mother's name. She described her family life as being tumultuous, and her family described Caroline as an incredibly manipulative and often misbehaved child. In an interview with a mental health counselor, Caroline said that she stole from people at times, but when she was asked to explain herself, she said she didn't know why, other than she was, you know, quote, the bad kid, and she felt like she had to act that way. What does this sound like to you? Labeling theory. Yeah, labeling theory. So I'm not sure which came first, whether Caroline was labeled this bad kid and then was fulfilling those behaviors, or whether or not she was, you know, acting out in ways that earned her this label. So that's something that we can never really quite establish later on. And a lot of this is from Caroline's point of view as well. In Caroline's opinion, she described her family life as being mentally and emotionally abusive. She felt her father was very controlling and had extreme anger issues. In letters between Caroline and her father, and we'll come to see that Caroline liked to write. She was a writer, letters, notes, scribblings, things of that nature. You can clearly read the discord between the two. And Caroline seems particularly resentful of him, but also resentful of her mother. The way she described her mother was that her mother was not very loving towards her at all and that she favored Caroline's sister much more so. Caroline also reported, and this is going to be the center of this case, that she had an intense dislike of herself. So Caroline was just extremely self-loathing and by all accounts, miserable. This is something she self-reported and something that was observed by everyone around her. Did she take medication? No, she did not take medication. Um, Not at this point. When she was just 14 years old, Caroline drew a very unflattering picture of herself. There's a lot of things that you can see in this case document-wise, including a lot of spots on her face, a very large nose. Is this body dysmorphia? It could be. So she drew spots on her face because she had acne, right? She drew a picture of a very large nose. Now, maybe she had a somewhat large nose, but it seems exaggerated Mm -hmm. in her photos. You know, flattened hair. She just drew such a physically self-disparaging portrait. And then she surrounded the portrait with words. It was awful. It was, you know, ugly, stupid, obese, useless, horrible. That's so sad. Pathetic. It's very sad. Yeah. Absolutely. I I mean, that's just a little bit of what she said. Along with the sentence that read, I remember on the side of this portrait, I looked it up and it said, quote, if the plastic surgeon lived overseas, what a good swimmer Carrie would be. So referring to herself as Carrie Mm -hmm. and and saying like, you know, she would do anything to fix this physical appearance. It's definitely exaggerated. The body dysmorphia question was a good one. She had other unflattering drawings of herself, referencing herself as, you know, pizza face with a small mouth, a big nose. She seemed to harp on that a lot. She was known to sign letters from Spotty Dotty. So that's like referencing her face acne at the time. And, you know, in turn also, unfortunately, Caroline was bullied mercilessly at school. You know, if you think about some of these cases where we've covered bullying or you know of bullying, there are maybe strong family supports, right? Mm -hmm. People who try to combat that, parents who are like supportive and, and try to help. It doesn't seem like Caroline received any support from her family. In fact, it seems kind of the opposite to me. Megan, in the pictures, she's not a bad-looking girl. That's really sad. 
Yeah, they have also pictures of her at the time of her sentencing, mm-hmm. pictures of her t- now. Yeah. Um, there's a series of progressions. But y- you were right, Amy. It, she was. It was an exaggerated point of view yeah. that might have been countered again with a family member who pointed out the positive things about Caroline, yeah. both inside and outside. Mm-hmm. So this does start as a very sad case. I agree. Caroline was very depressed. And although she graduated from high school and worked in telecommunications, she had very few social bonds and very few relationships. To make matters worse for Caroline in 1992, a new family moved into their neighborhood. That was everything her family was not. So they were loving, warm, close, supportive. And one daughter in particular would showcase to Caroline all the things that she wanted but couldn't obtain. That daughter was Rachel Barber. Rachel was born on September 12th, 1983. So she was about four years younger than Caroline. She had two sisters and resided with both of them and their parents, Elizabeth and Michael Barber, again, who reportedly shared a very loving relationship in a very supportive home. According to reports, they you know, weren't well off by any means. You know, they had their own financial struggles, but they seemed to handle it as a family unit and that didn't seem to have impacted their relationships. So Rachel met Caroline in 92 after her family moved into the Robertson's neighborhood in Mont Albert. Rachel became good friends with Caroline's younger sister and the two spent a lot of time together in both homes, I think more at the barber home. And Caroline actually babysat as well for Rachel and her siblings because they were younger than Caroline. The families got to be friends. I don't know about the parents, but the kids did. Rachel was described as passionate, committed, and kind. And while she had friends and a boyfriend, you know, she was, you know, reportedly popular. Many reports also said that Rachel was quite shy and quite reserved. According to Caroline, Rachel was very beautiful, striking, with a dancer's body and hypnotic green eyes. Caroline was writing about Rachel. Was she in love with her? I don't think it's love. I think it was jealousy. Oh, okay. Um, She saw Rachel like she saw Rachel as everything she wasn't. And Mm -hmm. you can tell by those reports. Again, she's she describes her beautiful skin and her striking appearance and the fact that she was so loved by her family. And so it seemed that it was more of, you know, wanting to be like Rachel. And even though uh, Caroline was four years older than Rachel, the two were friendly. I think at one point Rachel had said to someone that it was a little strange that Caroline wanted to be such good friends because she was older. But Rachel was still friendly with her, and I think Rachel was just a nice girl as well. I'm sorry if you said this, but at this time that you're discussing, Caroline had already graduated high school and Rachel was in high school? Yes. Actually, Rachel was going to high school for some time, but she left high school to pursue a full-time dance academy, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But Caroline had already graduated high school and was working, I think she worked for different mobile phone carriers. And that's, you know, they said telecommunications. So that, that that's how they met. Now, in 1997, Rachel's family moved again to Baywaters North, which is another suburb of Melbourne. And this was primarily, just so you know, Amy, to be closer to the city so that Rachel could take dance classes there. So Rachel's aspiration was always to become a professional dancer. At this point, Caroline also moved out of her parents' home into her own apartment near Richmond after getting a job with, like I said, in telecommunications with a mobile phone company. I looked up the two, though. The distance was not very far. So despite the moving, Caroline and Rachel remained in contact. And though I, I couldn't tell you how often they saw each other, Caroline remained in contact with the Barber family as well. 
again, I think the distance was like 20 minutes. Caroline had been their babysitter, you know, and I think she kind of inserted herself there or, or tried not to detach from the family in some way. Even though they might not have been that close, they were still close enough for Rachel to take two very important phone calls from Caroline on the night of February 28th, 1999. The first call was around 5 p.m. and lasted for about 15 minutes. And then Rachel talked to Caroline again, Caroline calling her around 6 p.m. And this time was for about a half an hour. So they had two phone calls for about 45 minutes but no one in the family knew what the phone calls were about. It almost seemed like Rachel was keeping quiet, which is look not that strange for a 15-year-old girl to want a little privacy mm-hmm. in her phone calls. But no one heard the content of those calls. On the following day, March 1st, 1999, Rachel's father dropped her at a tram stop at 9.30 a.m. so that she could take the train into Richmond, where she took full-time dance classes at a place called the Dance Factory. So at first, Rachel had started these classes casually. But she was so serious about a dancing career that she convinced her parents to let her leave high school and be a full-time dancer. She had been dancing from a very young age. And while her parents said that that was a really difficult decision for them, they also understood the serious commitment she had to this as her career. And so they supported her doing this. So that morning, Rachel met her boyfriend and his brother at their apartment complex on her way to class that morning. And the three left for the dance factory together. Was her boyfriend also a dancer there? Yes, he was. That's how they met. While in class, Rachel mentioned to a friend that she was going to be making some good money that night. She couldn't reveal any details, though. It was for a secret study, but the pay was substantial and Rachel was excited. So a little bit secretive. She also mentioned to her boyfriend that she was going to buy a pair of $100 shoes that she had her eye on after she earned some money that evening helping an old friend. Around 5.30 at the end of the day, full, you know, dance class day, Rachel left the dance factory alone. When Rachel's father arrived at the tram station to pick her up at their appointed time, she never showed up. The family reported her missing immediately, and they claimed they all knew right away that something was wrong. Rachel would not have just not shown up. Meanwhile, what's going on with Caroline? Well, on March 2nd, Caroline reported to work. So this was the day after she had reportedly met with Rachel. On the second, Caroline was unusually quiet and seemingly very pale, according to her coworkers. And she complained of feeling so unwell that day that her supervisor drove her home to her apartment around 10 a.m. that morning. Strangely, she also placed several calls to a friend that same day, asking a friend to pay her back a $320 loan. Caroline stated that she needed the money right away because she was having furniture moved to her father's house and needed to pay the movers. It was, you know, seemingly quite exigent. Her friend didn't have the full amount because it was an immediate thing, but she did give Caroline $200. So $100 out of her wallet, and then she drove to an ATM and got her another $100. Fast forward to the next day. On March 3rd, Caroline called out of work again, telling her supervisor that she was still not feeling well. She returned back to work, though, the next day on March 4th. And at some point during that week, she mentioned to a coworker, I think it was her supervisor, actually, that her friend had gone missing, but that, you know, it probably wasn't a big deal because it wasn't super out of character for her to run away from home. Hmm. Right. 
And that was not true. That would have been completely out of character for Rachel. It was a passing comment, but when police called Caroline's office looking to speak with her on March 10th, it was in direct correlation to information on Rachel Barber's disappearance. Rachel left the dance factory alone and was reportedly seen just over an hour later around 6.40 p.m. with a young woman matching Caroline Reed's physical description within close proximity as well to Caroline's apartment building. So by March 10th, they wanted to speak to Caroline. And I think the reason why is because they had the phone records from the evening before Mm -hmm. and they also had an eyewitness. So at the very least, I don't know if they suspected her of a crime, but I think they have some questions for her. That same day, so this is March 10th, so we're talking nine days after Rachel went missing, Caroline went to a bank to apply for a $10,000 car loan. Even though, here's the irony, Amy, Caroline didn't have a driver's license. That's weird. So a little strange. She also called out of work again on March 11th and March 12th, claiming to be sick again. Now, on the morning of the 12th, the police had knocked on Caroline's door to speak with her about Rachel's disappearance. But Caroline didn't answer. You know, they had been calling too. Remember, they called her supervisor. They're calling. Caroline's not getting back to them. And I think they're getting frustrated. Later on, the police went to her, um, what would it be, her manager, apartment building manager, and he or she provided a key for them. Ooh, that's, I mean, it's different laws, but I know in our country, a landlord can't consent to a a search of a tenant's apartment, I believe. So I don't know if they went under the guise that it was a search, rather that it was exigent circumstances and they really needed to see her. They were concerned also that she wasn't returning calls. There could be a welfare issue here. Oh, okay. So I think it was more of, you know, we're starting to get concerned about this woman. But the key didn't work for whatever reason. And so they contacted the fire department. And with the assistance of the fire department through some window, they gained access to her apartment later the same day of March 12th. When they did, they found Caroline unconscious on the floor. Hmm. Now, Caroline, and this might be one of the reasons they were concerned, had a history of epilepsy. Oh, okay. And investigators found um, near her unconscious body, they found a bunch of epilepsy medication packets nearby. Oh. It was theorized later by, I want to say, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, someone who treated Caroline, that it's possible this initial visit from police triggered an epileptic attack in Caroline. Oh, earlier that day they had? Yes. Right. Okay. Why are they stress-induced? You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure if they are, but I do believe to some extent some are. So I think that in this case also, the police were now at her door. They're not calling her anymore. So this definitely might have triggered some type of attack. So Caroline was taken to the hospital for treatment. While Caroline was at the hospital, officers searched her apartment. Remember, they had linked Caroline to Rachel because of those two phone calls the night before Rachel vanished. And now they have Caroline avoiding them. Mm -hmm. They have cause to search at this point. Mm -hmm. They found a bag of clothing that clearly did not belong to Caroline. Now, I don't know if this was in like a shopping bag or a garbage bag, but they looked out of place. And when they pulled out the clothing, judging on Caroline's size, they also looked like they were from a female who was much smaller in stature and more slender. Police also found a ton of notes handwritten by Caroline describing all the ways that she felt about Rachel and how jealous she was of the younger girl's looks and talents. But the most shocking note they found was one that Caroline had written about her plans 
for Rachel the night of their secret meeting. So remember those phone calls that they were dis- you know, discussing? The plan was mm-hmm. a secret meeting. And Caroline had told Rachel that she needed help with some study of some type. And she would pay Rachel the specifics I'm not exactly sure of. But let me read you part of this. Uh, I want to quote from a bit of this note, okay? On the way to dance school, say that she can't tell anyone that she's meeting me as I'm not allowed to give the study results to anyone. Ethics, highly confidential, not even your boyfriend parent. Drug Rachel, parentheses, toxic over mouth, put body into army bags and disfigure and dump somewhere way out. No car. What? Bombshell here. Wow. All right. So that's enough to arrest her now? I mean, uh, certainly enough to go ahead and question her. I don't think they were expecting to find this. So at first it seemed, Amy, like Caroline maybe believed she could somehow take Rachel's identity. She actually had applied. This is crazy. She had applied for a copy of Rachel's birth certificate. So at one point, this is very odd, but at one point Caroline called Rachel's family, someone else in the family, and asked for their date of births, saying it was from some type of school project, family tree thing, even though it's not the same family. I'm not sure what her excuse was, but they trusted Caroline. She was a babysitter and she just wanted their date of births. And they thought, okay, maybe they're doing a you know a study on sisters or something. So she had gotten all of their dates of birth and actually applied for a copy of Rachel's birth certificate. So you mentioned, Megan, that she went to get a loan for a car. Yes. Was she planning on assuming Rachel's identity and like starting new? It's really interesting, Amy, because at first it seemed like her plan was to assume Rachel's identity. However, other documents from her apartment showed that Caroline had been planning on creating an entirely new identity for herself as a 16-year-old girl named Jem Southall. What? So at first it seemed like she was planning on taking Rachel. Also, I would like to point out when you asked about the car loan, she was denied that car loan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. I would have assumed that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, hiccup in the plan there. But yeah, it seemed like at first she was going to go for Rachel's, but then I don't know if she realized that this just wasn't possible. So it's also interesting to me, Amy, that she's creating identities that are based on much younger individuals, right? 15, 16-year-olds, where she's 19, almost 20 years old. It almost, I think, might show Caroline's emotional immaturity. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it, does it make her somewhat delusional? I'm not sure. At the hospital, much to, I think, everyone's surprise, Caroline very matter-of-factly confessed to the police that she killed Rachel. Though she did not give the exact details because she said she really could not recall them, she did claim somewhat of an amnesiac state for details, but I don't think it was you know her trying to cover up what she did. She directed them to her father's property, one of her father's properties, where police found Rachel's body in a shallow grave on March 13th, just two weeks after the girl's disappearance. An autopsy revealed that Rachel had been killed via ligature strangulation, which for anyone who doesn't know strangulation, this is strangulation with an external object that applies force as opposed to manual strangulation with someone's hands. I think this was a surprise as well because no one had known the details yet about you know what had happened to Rachel. Caroline was arrested for the murder of Rachel Barber and sent to jail to await trial. At first, she acclimated very poorly to the circumstances. And according to court records, 
she, quote, engaged in acts of self-mutilation, slashing both her wrists and her forearms. I don't know. This is entirely uncommon. I'm not saying that people who are arrested self-harm, but a young girl with a history of mental illness. I do believe this could be a, a reaction to being hmm. detained in jail. Yeah. But she was given a psychologist in the jail and she got better through treatments with her psychologist and also as well from a Buddhist monk who visited her. I think you've heard of definitely like um, religious figures coming in and meeting with prisoners. So yeah. I guess for whatever reason, this monk, you know, chose to come in and meet with prisoners here and Caroline attached to this person. In a later report on her adjustment, her psychologist said that Caroline had come to depend on her prison life as her home and her unit as her family. Sorry if I missed this, but did she plead guilty? She did. In exchange for what? Yeah, I'm going to tell you. Don't worry. Oh, okay. Because this is actually prior to her sentence. She started to, like, immediately when she was jailed and awaiting, mm -hmm. you know, her plea agreement, she didn't do well, but then she started to adjust gotcha. to this okay. life. Because usually you don't see people adjusting till once they get to prison. And interestingly that you say that, Amy, the judge was very concerned about this, expressing that he did not want or he feared at such a young age that Caroline could become institutionalized. I actually think that was a little bit of a strange concern at first. He had not yet. So he This was at the sentencing hearing. But usually, wouldn't there be kind of almost a positive point to at least her adapting to prison life and being able to function and finding, I don't know, some, some social bonds? I'm not sure that I understood why he was so concerned right then. I would have thought that would he prefer her to be self-mutilating and harming? I don't think that, you know, would be the preference. That being said... What do you think her sentence was? I'll tell you, but what do you think she got sentenced to? I'm going to say it's probably more lenient based on the concerns of the judge. The judge did seem to be one of the only people who was very concerned in Caroline's life about her history and her mental health. Although he also very sternly on the record made note of the planning that went into this, mm -hmm. the life that she took, the jealousy. And I'll explain from her point of view also in a little bit. She eventually recalls some details. All right. So, sorry. Play that game again. What uh, what do you think she got? 15? Very close. Oh. Very close. The judge sentenced Caroline to 20 years in prison with at least 14 and a half to be served before consideration of parole. Mm -hmm. Now, Caroline was released on parole on January 20th, 2015. It was her second time seeing the parole board. She had previously been denied parole before in August of 2013. I'm a little confused about it because I don't think that was 14 and a half years when she saw. Remember, he said you had to, she yeah. had to serve 14 mm -hmm. and a half. So in 2013, she wasn't even at 14 years yet. So I'm not sure how she made a claim, but it was an early, maybe an early claim. What was she denied on? Like, was she not showing remorse? What was... Do you have any idea? Yeah, Caroline did not show remorse. It's been reported that she did not, but also... One of the reasons I think she was denied, it was early and Rachel's family and friends came out protesting this, you know, mm -hmm. and then they came out pretty strong. How long, how many years in was it? Her first bit of parole was about 13 or a little over okay. 13. It's not that far from the 14 and a half, but. No, but it's still under. Yeah. I, yeah. The second one was at 15 years um, and that's the one she was successful on. Now, Rachel's parents said that they were disappointed that Caroline did not serve at least 17 or 18 years of her sentence. You know, they had protested the early parole bid. However, Amy, I would like to point out that they also said that they hoped she was rehabilitated and they called upon the public not to harass Caroline and her family to wow. let them go in peace. That's so big of them. I always think this. We we say that all the time. I don't think I could do that. And I just thought it was 
I read a little bit more and they said, look, we really hope she is rehabilitated. And, wow. you know, it's it's not going to change things. Please let her and her family be private. I'm assuming at this point she was showing remorse. Some people say Caroline never showed remorse. Her psychologist might be the only one who says differently. And I'll tell you what he said right now. So this is what Caroline told her psychologist actually happened with Rachel. And just so you know, she doesn't remember all the details and her psychologist believes fully that there are parts that she really truly cannot recall uh, because he said she wasn't trying to abdicate responsibility, but there's just some dazed or kind of fuzzy parts. So here's what she finally came to or reported to her psychologist during treatments with him. She met Rachel after the dance class as planned, and the two picked up some pizzas and went back to Caroline's apartment. Caroline had purchased alcohol and offered Rachel alcohol, but Rachel wasn't interested. You know, I don't think that alcohol was her thing. So Caroline suggested, and it's a little strange, (laughs) that they do a meditation technique to help relax. Now, honestly, Rachel may have thought this was weird, but she did it. I don't know if she knew yet what this study was she was participating in. So it's possible, you know, just as just speculation, but it's possible Caroline said, no, 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 this will help you relax so that you can answer honestly. Okay. It's thought as well that Caroline slipped some type of antihistamine into Rachel's either non-alcoholic drink or pizza, because remember, this was part of the original plan. And because toxicology later showed there was some type of antihistamine in Rachel's system. Why would that have incapacitated her? Yeah. Antihistamines like Benadryl. Yeah. They just tend to make you drowsy. And I think the original plan was to slip it, was to crush more of it into an alcoholic drink, which, you know, the double effect of that would Mm -hmm. have incapacitated her completely. That part went, I think, awry when Rachel, you know, turned down the alcohol. Um, Okay, so while, so, okay, Rachel sits on the floor and I guess, you know, she's meditating and it's possible she's sleepy at this point. Regardless, I don't think she had any idea what was about to happen. While she was meditating, Caroline slipped behind her. Caroline said she had a moment where she no longer wanted to go through with it. She proceeded to strangle Rachel with an electrical cord from behind. She later reported feeling she was too far committed and already would be in too much trouble. So she had to finish what she started. It's unfortunate because she, you know, there was that there was that moment Mm. where she could have turned back. When Rachel was dead, Caroline put Rachel's body in her closet where she left her for the next two days while she arranged a taxi ride to her father's piece of property, this remote piece of property. I don't know. I don't think her father maybe lived on this one. Like, I think he owned more than one property. Mm -hmm. According to Caroline, she wrapped Rachel's body in a rug, multiple rugs, and put her in an old army type bag she possessed, telling her taxi driver that she was transporting a sculpture to her father's property. Jeez. I know. I still wonder how she pulled that off. When does decomposition start? Would there be a scent at this point? There definitely could be a scent. There was no reported one, but absolutely. Decomposition can start really quickly. The thing is, decomp usually starts quicker based on heat conditions. And I think since she was in the apartment and that, you know, it was probably regulated temperature, she probably bought herself a little bit more time. I know, unfortunately, when they found Rachel's body, it was in a shallow grave and decomposition had began and progressed. Mm -hmm. So that's Caroline's full confession. Question. Did Caroline say if Rachel fought back or anything? She didn't say. I don't think that she ever was able to even turn around. I think the way that Caroline strangled her from behind and the strength, if I imagine, Rachel was probably pulling at her neck, but I don't think she fought back. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not for lack of trying. I just think that the immediate uh, concern is get get the pressure off your neck. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that's Caroline's full confession. Some people say she has not really shown remorse. Her psychologist said that she believed Caroline is aware of what she has done and has does feel badly about it and would never do something like this again. But there hasn't really been a public showing of remorse by Caroline. And I think that is upsetting to some. Okay, so Amy, now that we've gotten through the story, I want to talk about the conclusions about our theory and the causes of crime here. Oh, my goodness. You know, I spoke with Shiloh, but I, I have my own theories and we kind of combine them before I get into it. Does anything come to your mind in terms of explaining Caroline's behavior? This is a more complicated offender I think we usually deal with. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you mentioned social bonds. She had a lack of social bonds, but she also, she did work. Like, she was a functioning member of society. It sounds like she had some friends, maybe, or... I think just co-workers that she was friendly with, but I don't believe she had a social life. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those cases that the reliance on psychological theory is going to be where we land. But I think it's interesting that you said um, that she was high functioning because the judge said that on the record as well. He said, like, you know, while you appear to have a history of depression and you do not appear, said not a lot of social contacts or family support, you've nonetheless been a very functioning member of society, working, Mm -hmm. maintaining an apartment Mm -hmm. and whatnot. So that was part of the record. Uh, It was a very interesting sentencing hearing. The judge seemed to do what I thought was a a good job of balancing almost a sympathy and an appreciation Mm -hmm. for the fact that she had, you know, such serious self-loathing and depression, but also stressing how there were so many decision points and so many different things that she could have done and the depravity she showed for Rachel's life. And she clear, it was clearly premeditated and she clearly knew the wrongfulness of her actions. Absolutely. Okay. So let me, let me try to break this down a little bit. Caroline, as we said, had self-loathing so deep that it was, I I mean, I can't say close enough bordering on self-hate or equal to self-hate. She could not stand to be in her own skin. And so she latched onto Rachel. And we don't know why Rachel as opposed to someone else. I think just because of the proximity of Rachel and her family members. But she saw Rachel or she saw to come Rachel as everything she wanted to be and everything she could never achieve. Part of what's so interesting about that was that Rachel's mom, I believe, in like her victim impact statement, talked about some of the struggles Rachel had with her own desires and her own feelings of not self-loathing, but uncertainty and self-esteem. And it it was so interesting to hear her say, like, you know, she thought, you know, what this picture was. She's like, but my daughter had issues, too, and she wasn't by any means perfect. It didn't feel that way at all. Was Caroline delusional at all in the sense that did she think that killing Rachel was somehow going to make her prettier or smarter or a dancer of some way? Let me read you my next two lines and tell me if this answers your question, because sometimes I think you do read my mind. (laughs) I wrote that Caroline created a fantasy in which she convinced herself that in killing Rachel, she would become her. And my second comment was, while not making the legal standard per se for insanity, I believe she was to some extent delusional. Yeah. So that was my own interpretation here. That's where it gets tricky, because She clearly was suffering from mental illness and delusion, but at the same time, she understood the wrongfulness of the act. So it's almost like a contradiction. Yeah. And at the same time, also, she did seem to realize at some point that she couldn't become Rachel, like she could not become her. And so she was planning another identity. But I think at first it began with this delusion of becoming her. Like I said, I spoke with Dr. Shiloh at LA Not So Confidential. She was nice enough to do a cursory review of the case, and her initial thoughts were very similar to what I suspected. But I just want to make sure that everyone understands she did not do a deep dive and she's not trying to diagnose. She was just giving me some, you know, of her opinions. 
Dr. Shiloh said that this case reminded her and me, by the way, of the movie Single White Female. Do you remember the movie? Never saw it. You know, I've never seen classics. I don't even understand how that's possible, Amy. Okay, well, let me just tell you, in this movie, Jennifer Jason Lee tries to become Bridget Fonda, who she saw as this attractive, smart, and successful woman, and she was everything opposite of that. So she's slowly trying to take over her life. And while this movie, as Shiloh points out, did a little more than contribute to the, quote, crazy woman syndrome, the character seemed to suffer a mix of two disorders, which she thinks can be applied to Caroline's situation. And that's why she kind of brought that up. These two personality disorders, I I don't know if it's going to surprise you, Amy, are antisocial personality and borderline personality disorder. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's start with borderline. Borderline, as Shiloh pointed out, some of the things she saw here, rapid changes in self-identity and self-image that include shifting goals and values. So I think we could probably apply that to Caroline here. A pattern of unstable, intense relationships, such as idealizing someone one moment and then believing the person doesn't care enough or is cruel. So I think certainly idealizing Rachel was part of Caroline's pattern. Ongoing feelings of emptiness. I think we see that completely. Inappropriate, intense anger, losing your temper or being sarcastic or bitter. Most of these qualities, quite frankly, are present in Caroline. Mm -hmm. When we turn to antisocial personality disorder, there are many characteristics here and I don't believe they all apply. And that's why she's not saying she suffered from like, you know, the perfect cases. And that was why this one was hard for me as well, because of the extent, I think, of the self-loathing and hatred for herself. It was hard. But when we turn to antisocial personality disorder, you know, one of the hallmarks here is a disregard for right and wrong. Caroline simply did know what she was going to do was Mm -hmm. wrong, but just did not care. Using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain. You know, she was doing this with Rachel. She was manipulating Rachel for, you know, her end goal. So impulsiveness or failure to plan ahead. Caroline did do some planning, and I don't think that I would characterize her necessarily as impulsive here. It was just the failure to really have a realistic plan. Mm. You know, she didn't she had a limited plan. But from what also from what I understand, when you look at the criteria, you don't need to meet all of them. Right. No, 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 you absolutely do not. So hostility, irritability, agitation, violence. These are all hallmark symptoms as well that I think Caroline displayed and and really a lack of empathy or a lack of remorse for harming others. By all accounts, Caroline has still not really shown the remorse that people had wanted her to show. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I couldn't find any reports that she was publicly remorseful at Mm -hmm. all or talked about this with anyone other than maybe a psychologist. So did the criminal justice system get it right? This is, you know, one of the best discussions here. Not only did I want this case for the theory, but I wanted this for the system. Well, I need to know what she's doing right now. Well, I could tell you, I don't know. She was released in 2015 and Mm -hmm. I could not find any reports of her ever being found in the public spotlight again. I would assume she changed her identity. I would assume that she changed her name. She looked significantly different when she was released from prison as well than when she was in. Um, She was, you know, much slimmer, had straighter hair. Like she didn't look like the same person. So she could probably, you know, kind of be under that guise. But it's been seven years and I couldn't find any report of a return to prison or a return to jail or any type of offense. Um, So, so far, the only assumption we can make is that she's stayed out of trouble. Do we know what she was doing while she was incarcerated? I'm assuming she was under, you know, a therapeutic program and... She was, yeah. Um, By all reports, she made good use of her time. No infractions? No, adjusted to prison life pretty well. Um, No infractions that we know. 
I don't know what contact she had with her family. I know she did establish a relationship, though, with another female in there who I think was released earlier or previously. Uh, it was a couple of years, the relationship. I have no idea if it continued. So Caroline was sentenced to 20 years at the discretion of a judge and released at 15 at the discretion of a parole board. Really quickly, I just want to let you know, her sentence was in the year 2000. As of 2003, Australian law has the standard sentences for murder cases as a non-parole period of 20 years or 25 years for cases involving minors and other public community and government officials, such as police officers and healthcare workers, mm -hmm. teachers. There was a list of those categories. Mm -hmm. So that's of 2003. Most cases fall under a 20-year non-parole period. Mm -hmm. So Caroline seemed to benefit from the fact that hers was three years prior because she was able to have a parole period after 14 and a half years. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they moved to a little bit, I would say, harsher. I'm not saying completely harsh. I'm just mm -hmm. saying that in general. In Australia, there is no death penalty, as you probably know, but life sentences are reserved for the most serious cases that are so grave that there is no community interest in ever releasing someone. So if you look at their sentencing statutes, you'll see that they list aggravating factors that would warrant a maximum of life mm -hmm. in prison. So cases involving torture and mutilation, cases, I appreciated this one, cases where an offender knowingly deprives a child of his or her parent. Very interesting to me. Isn't that what she did? Wouldn't um, Caroline fall under that by kidnapping Rachel? If you're knowingly depriving a small child of their parent, so you murder a child's parent and take the oh, gotcha, okay, the parent away from a child. There's other factors as well, and obviously this isn't a case here. However, interestingly, Amy, one of them was another factor for a life sentence was premeditated, cold-blooded execution. Couldn't one argue that Caroline falls into that category? Yeah, but I'm assuming these came in 2003. These criteria, or no, they were also around. You know, uh, actually, the criteria for maximum of life in prison, I'm, I think mm -hmm. we're probably in place before then. Yeah. I'm just thinking in general, when you look at life sentence too, though, even if that wasn't the exact criteria, we are talking about a premeditated crime that was an execution that some people might say strangulation is particularly cruel because it takes a long time. I would think that her mental illness mitigated those factors. Oh, yeah, I think so as well. And I have to say, in Caroline's case, I actually think 20 years was likely the appropriate sentence, though you know how I feel probably and could guess that I would have liked her to serve the full 20. She got out in her 30s, and I think that the full 20 would have been appropriate. What do you think? I actually agree with you this time. I don't like that she didn't show remorse, although we don't know for sure. I would have liked to see maybe some restitution with the family because she did know the victim. She knows the family. That sounds like the family's forgiving her because they're saying that they hope that she could live a, a better life now. So I'm wondering if Caroline has done anything in return and contacted the family or maybe she's not allowed to. I don't know, but I would love to know that as well. I think that's such a good point. I also think her, you know, she's still pretty young. I, I don't usually like long sentences, but I think 20 would have been appropriate in this situation. Yeah. I, her psychologist, as I said, said that he thinks Caroline is remorseful, but she's never made a public statement to this effect. But that leads people to conclude that she's not remorseful. I don't know if that's true or not. And you're right. We don't know if she contacted the family. We don't know if she feels terrible and maybe it's just quiet and doesn't talk about it. But there isn't much that we can say about remorse. I would also want to make sure she's medication compliant because it sounds like through therapy and medication, like she's 
that she's treating her illness because I do believe that she did have a mental illness. Oh, yeah. I would just be worried that if she did not comply with her medication, could something like this happen again? It's the exact same concern I would have. So let's hope that she certainly is. I'm sure it's one of the terms of her release, I would have to imagine. But look, let's hope that Caroline's rehabilitated and we don't hear her name again for any type of reoffending. And also, I just want to end by really commending Rachel's family for hoping the same and asking others mm -hmm. to show that type of generosity. That's incredible. That really just shows so much of their character and what kind of person Rachel probably was. Okay, well, again, I'd like to thank Allie from Melbourne, Australia, for bringing me such an interesting case. And thank you to everyone for listening today. We will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include the court transcript from Caroline Robertson's sentencing on November 29th, 2000, the Herald Sun, the Daily Mail, www.news.com, and the sentencing bench book provided online by the Judicial Commission of New South Wales. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.